It's great to be with you here today. The question I've been asked to speak about is how did Islam shape civilization and what would the West look like under Sharia? Sharia is the Islamic name for their legal system. It's a legal system that encompasses everything in life, both religious and the things of this world, the secular things. I have a copy of it here if you wanted to come and see it. This is one of the standard manuals of Islamic law. What I want to do is to to look at the difference that Jesus has made to the West and I'm really going to compare two systems. I'm going to look at what Islam has for a civilization and then compare that to what the West has from its Christian heritage and in that way talk about Christ and that way do a comparison of uh, how, uh, looking at how Islam shapes civilization and what that would mean for the West if it was to take that on. When I talk about the West, we, we think, well, the, the West has a Christian heritage. The West has a Christian heritage. And that is true, but it almost wasn't the case. It almost wasn't the case. Recently, we celebrated, although I doubt if anybody did, we celebrated the Battle of Tours. The Battle of Tours, which occurred on October 10th, 7, uh, 732 AD. In, uh, I believe it's in southern France. Why is that date important? Well, what had happened was that 100 years before, Muhammad had died and sent out his jihadists to bring the world under Islamic rule. They conquered all of North Africa. Well, they conquered the Middle East, all of North Africa. They conquered Spain. They kept going and they only made it as far as Tours. And it was at Tours where um, European soldiers were able to give them a decisive defeat. Before that time, for a hundred years, Europeans had been conquered and enslaved by the jihadists, as they called themselves, uh, and their goal was to take all of Europe. And so Europe could well have had, if it wasn't for the grace of God, a history of Sharia. In the east, of course, it was Constantinople which held out against the Islamic Jihad. But in 1453, uh, Constantinople fell to the, uh, to the Turkish Muslims. And uh, that the fall of Constantinople and the end of Eastern Christian civilization is still celebrated in the Islamic world and looked to, looked to as a source of inspiration. One of the points I want to bring out, particularly for our current culture in Australia, is we talk about multiculturalism and Islam fits within this subject of multiculturalism within our popular discussion. However, this is incorrect as the title for this talk uh, that was given to me uh, correctly points out, Islam is not a culture. Islam is not a culture. Islam is a civilization, 
There's a difference, isn't there? A civilization will have many cultural expressions of that civilization. But Islam's not a culture. Islam is its own civilization, which has its own array of cultures which come out of it. Arabian expressions, Asian expressions, African expressions, Australian expressions. So Islam is a civilization, not a culture. When Islam takes over a region, when they conquered a region, they changed the calendar. That's what a civilization does. They changed the food, legally changed the food. They changed what marriage looks like. They changed the religion. As we'll see, they made a whole range of changes. They're just not cultural changes. When you're changing the calendar and events like that, you're, you're making civilizational changes, and that's what Islam does. The civilization of Islam, of course, removed much of Christian civilization. So the Christian civilization of North Africa no longer exists because it was conquered and it either fled into Europe or it was enslaved and died out under Islam. The nascent Christian culture, the, the nascent Christian culture of Spain, once it was conquered by Islam, basically completely died out. That Roman Christian culture there died out. The Middle East was basically Christian was, was a Christian in the 7th century with various Christians doing various types of things. That basically is all gone now. And as I said, on May 29th, with the fall of Constantinople in 1453, the Christian East really came to an end in terms of its civilizational effect. So Islam is a, uh, is a civilization and it's, it normally removes other civilizations. It just didn't remove the Christian civilization. It removed the Persian civilization. We read about the Persians in the Bible. We don't read about them anymore because Islam removed that. It brought an end to that civilization. I now want to briefly look at a whole range of topics. And hopefully you've got your notes to follow along here. And I'll be referring to quotes in those notes that we'll read together. The first one is that Islam shapes civilizations and it would have changed the West in that we would have a different narrative. A different narrative. Now, what do I mean by narrative? I mean every civilization has a story that underpins it, some story that is a common story to the people within that civilization. And for the West, our story has been the Christian story. The story of God creating the world, of humanity sinning and turning away from God, their creator, coming under the judgment of God, and then God working through the man Abraham to make the nation of Israel, and through that nation of Israel to create a culture which he will then speak to the world in the coming of his son, our Lord Jesus Christ. That's the story that we have. And so for us, it is Christ alone in our focus. We read all of the prophets in the Bible and they point us to Jesus. And in Christ, our culture has had its mission, its great commission. Particularly, this has been focused within the church, where we are to bring the gospel 
to the nations around us. And this is something that the West has done in its time. Other uh, areas of the world, the, the Christian East was a missionary, uh, was, a, was involved in mission as well, and North Africa was involved in mission in various ways. But when the West uh, really understood the gospel again, it began to take the gospel out and this was part of our narrative, part of our story, our great commission. And so many of our heroes are gospel heroes. Gospel heroes who were missionaries or people who applied the gospel to their culture. If the West was Islamic, we would have a different narrative. We wouldn't have that story. We wouldn't have that understanding of the world. The understanding of the world would be that God made the world... But there's no fall. There is no real problem with sin. Sin in Islam is not a significant problem. You just need guidance. God has put us on earth for testing. And basically, the earth is not so much to be renewed. There's not a, a, the resurrection is not understood in those sense, if, if at all, in the Quran. What happens is that we are to be tested and you will either go to heaven or you will go to hell. There is, no real, there is no story of redemption in the Quran. The story of redemption that we find throughout the, the biblical prophets is not there. God in the Quran has sent prophets to every nation. Israel's not unique. Every prophet has, every nation has got has had a prophet. Even Buddha and the Hindus were all originally Islamic prophets. Uh, in, in this way of thinking about the world. And Jesus was sent to the nation of Israel. But of course, the greatest prophet is Muhammad. And so for Muslims, they're not solar Christus. They're not Christ alone. They're Muhammad alone. That would have been a big shift. We would have shifted from being Christ alone to everything being centered around Muhammad. And Muhammad would have given us a very different history. Because Muhammad... Muhammad's great commission was quite different to Jesus' great commission. Look at point A in your notes, please. This is after Muhammad has conquered Mecca and he's now turning his attention on the Roman and Persian empires. He says, Fight those who believe not in God and the last day and do not forbid what God and his messenger Muhammad have forbidden. Such men as practice not the religion of truth. So I'll just pause there. So he's saying, fight everyone who doesn't believe in Allah, the God of Islam, and doesn't follow what I teach, Muhammad, and people who don't follow the religion of truth, that is, those who don't follow Islam. Being, so these are the people you're to fight, those who have been given the book. Now, the people of the book is the way the Quran speaks about Christians and Jews, because we had a book before Muslims did. It says, make them, uh, fight them who have been given the book until they pay the tribute, or it's called the jizya, which is it's the terms of surrender, out of hand and have been humbled. The Jews say Ezra is the son of God. The Christians say the Messiah is the son of God. That is the utterance of their mouths conforming with the unbelievers before them. God assail them, how they are perverted. It is he who has sent his messenger with the guidance and the religion of truth that he may uplift it above every religion. 
So you can see why Christians are to be conquered. It's not that they were involved in any warfare against Muhammad. Christians are to be conquered because of what they believe. It's because they believe that Jesus is the Son of God. That makes you guilty. And so you are to be conquered. And the, the goal in Islam, that the trajectory of the Quran, and it's mentioned three times, I've given you the reference there, is that Allah is going to militarily uplift Islam over every other religion. It's important to remember this because we can often assume that Jesus sent out missionaries, therefore Muhammad sent out missionaries. But we're in a different civilization. Muhammad did not send out missionaries. Muhammad sent out jihadists. Muhammad sent out jihadists. And that's quite a different history, isn't it? They didn't go out arguing and being missionaries and martyrs trying to bring a gospel message to people, they went out as armies to fulfil Muhammad's great commission. Look at point C in your notes. The prophet said, He who fights so that Allah's word should be superior fights for Allah's cause. It's very clear what the Quran teaches there. And in fact, the Quran glamorises the jihadist. The word jihad means to struggle. You will hear it. You'll hear Muslims talk about it as the struggle. And it is the struggle. It's the struggle to make Islam dominate in all areas. And the Quran lifts up the jihadist above everyone else. Look at point D in your notes. Not equal are those believers, those Muslims, who sit at home and receive no hurt, and those who strive and fight in the cause of God with their goods and possessions. Okay, so they're not equal. There's two types of Muslims. Those who sit at home are not equal to those who go out on jihad, who go out to fight. God has granted a grade higher. See, as Christians, we don't think of Christians having higher gradings, do we? We think we're all corrupted by sin and we're all equally saved by Jesus. But in Islam, sin's not a problem. Sin, sin's not something that's corrupted us. And so you, you can have different grades of obedience to God. And God holds you in different grades before him. So God has granted a grade higher to those who strive or jihad and fight with their goods and persons over those who stay at home. Unto all Muslims... God has promised good, but those who strive and fight, he has distinguished above those who sit at home by a special reward, ranks specially bestowed by him and forgiveness and mercy. So if the West was under Islamic law and following Sharia, our famous heroes would not be evangelists. Our famous heroes would not be Martin Luther our famous heroes would be the military leaders who, through Western conquest, helped to spread Islam to the world. We'd have a different story, a very different story. We wouldn't be really remembering people like Martin Luther as much. We'd be learning people like Umar or Khaled or the great uh, jihadists of the Islamic histories who conquered the world for Islam. 
We'd also have a different set of wars. Now, Christians have unfortunately had plenty of wars between ourselves. I wouldn't say that it's a characteristic of all of our history. And by God's grace, the example of Jesus is a mitigating influence against us fighting each other. But we have had wars. But if Europe and the West had accepted Islam or had been conquered and brought under Sharia, we would have different wars. That's how things would be different because Islam would not have brought us peace. It would have brought us a division because what would Europe have been? Would we have been Sunni Muslim or would we have been Shia Muslim? They're the two options that were before us and it really depended upon which jihadists conquered us as to which one we would have gone. But if we'd been Sunni, then we'd be at war with Iran and uh, Iraq and a whole range of other places. If we'd gone with the Shia, then we'd be at war with others. So we'd have a different set of wars if we had accepted Islam. I'm just going to go through these quickly. If the West was under Sharia, we would have a different view of humanity. As I pointed out before, the the Islamic view is that humanity is not corrupted by sin. We're not corrupted by sin. God has made us weak. And the reason that we sin is that other people lead us astray and uh, and other nations may lead us astray. And, and to some degree our own desires, but it's mainly uh, that the forces around us cause us to sin. That means that if... Uh, Women have to be completely covered up with their, just their eyes showing because if they don't, then it's a cause, it's, it's their fault because I'm pure. You see how it actually has quite significant impact, uh, quite a significant impact, your doctrine of sin as to how you understand people. It, it, the doctrine of sin really affects how you construct a government as well. Uh, in the West, we've had lots of checks and balances in our government because we believe that everyone's sinful and you ultimately can't trust them. When you have a government where you, when you have people who say we're not corrupted by sin, you have a different form of government. Have a look at point E in your notes. This is how Muslims are encouraged to think about themselves. You, so this is what the, how the Quran addresses Muslims. It says, you are the best nation ever brought forth to men, bidding to honour and forbidding dishonour and believing in God. Had the people of the book, that is Jews and Christians, believed, it would be better for them. Some of them are believers, but most of them are ungodly. So how are Muslims encouraged in the Quran to think of themselves? That they are the best. They are the best. It's very interesting. You know in Deuteronomy where God, say, uh, God says to the nation of Israel, do not say to yourself that you are better than these other nations. It's not because of your righteousness that I'm giving you this land, but because of their wickedness. You know that part in Deuteronomy? The Quran is the exact opposite. It actually says you're the best. Now that gives you a completely different way of viewing history. Because you're the best. Whereas for us in the West, we're very self-critical. In Islam, they're not nearly as self-critical because the Quran says we're the best. And because of its 
understanding that humanity is not corrupted, Islam is like Marxism in that it is utopian. It is utopian. Something that the West has had its scourge with in terms of Marxism, which has tried to bring about a utopia uh, with its Marxism and the communism that came from it, all of which failed. But Marx, uh, that utopian view is that we can bring heaven on earth now. That sin's not a problem. That just with the right guidance, we can make heaven on earth here. This is what the Marxists believed, and this is how Islam approaches things. Of course, it doesn't work, but the West doesn't have this view. This doctrine of our corruption, of sin, of how sin has corrupted us, has made us have checks and balances and accountability and a criticism of our own history that we don't find in the Islamic world to any degree, like we find in the West. My fourth point is that it would lead, uh, the Islamic the Islamic civilization leads to a different class structure within society. There, are, there has been class structures within Christian, uh, within Christian societies, but the gospel itself and the Bible itself doesn't create a class structure. These things may happen because of economic and cultural reasons, but Islam actually makes a class structure. That is, Christians and Jews, once they're conquered, are to live as people called the Vimy. The Vimy. And the Vimy are conquered peoples who are second class citizens. And so this is how your Coptic Christians and your Syrian Christians and Lebanese Christians and uh, Iraqi Christians were treated for most of Islamic history. We, we think about the Christians in Egypt as being uh, maybe not treated equally, but it's far better for them now than it used to be. When the Sharia was in charge, they had to pay money each year in order to stop the jihad being made against them. And this is how it was for over a, a thousand years. I have a book here that will be up on my table that you can have a look at. It's just called Islam and Vimitude. And this leads to a completely different way of seeing yourself as uh, the, the, the Christians, when they're conquered, see themselves as hopeless, as unworthy, as, as the people who are just the failures in community because that's the message that comes across. And so Islam brings a, uh, a class structure with it in which there are people at different class levels, something which in the West we don't have. Uh, even for people of other religions, we don't go putting Muslims or Jews or into a different class. People have tried to do that, but that's not what the Bible or the Gospel encourages us to do. I'll skip down to point four and women. The difference that Islamic civilization makes to women is quite significant. It certainly, encourages polyg uh, it certainly encourages modesty for women, but it, it's far more than just modesty. I want to look at some of the changes that we see here. I think the first one is to the family unit and to marriage itself. Islam is a polygamist religion. And when it conquered the Middle East where Christianity was, it took away monogamy and replaced it with polygamy. And polygamy 
changes things for women. In a monogamous marriage, the man and the woman bind themselves equally to each other. And that is significant. That is a civilizational shift. So that for a Christian man, even having sex with a, 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 an unmarried woman is still counted as adultery to his wife. This is not the case in Islam. People will say that polygamy was only allowed in the Quran because there was an excess of women from the warfare that Muhammad was conducting. But this is not the case because polygamy is the reward in heaven. So it's not just a temporal setting here on earth or some special need that there may be some special need because most men died and women want to have children so it may have to happen. No, no, no. Women are the reward in heaven. Have a look at point G in your notes. Perfectly we formed them, perfect, and made them spotless virgins, chastely amorous, like of age for the companions of the right. Now, I haven't got time to go through all of those references, but you can look at them in F and G there. But this is the descriptions of the virgins in heaven that Muslim men will receive. This polygamy changes a civilization as to how you think about marriage. It changes how, you, how a man thinks about a woman. Because in a polygamist situation, in the marriage, the woman is bound to the man, but the man is in no way bound to the woman. And that changes everything. That is a civilizational shift that uh, in the West we, we still want to hold on to monogamy because we see that that is really a fundamental right to women, that their husbands be bound to them in the same way they are to their husbands. The gospel has made a big difference to the West as well in terms of the teaching of Jesus about clean and unclean. In Christian civilizations, food is clean. And the, the, the ceremonial laws of the Old Testament, particularly pertaining to women when they menstruate, no longer apply in Christian civilizations. Certainly when a woman is menstruating, uh, Christians don't have sex with women at that time, from, purely from a hygienic and rest point of view. But in Islamic culture, it's different. It is an Old Testament style of religion where women, when they menstruate, it's not just a hygiene issue, it's a clean and unclean issue. Things they touch become unclean. They're not allowed to go into Mecca if they're menstruating because they will defile it. Now, that shifts everything, doesn't it? All of a sudden, women become a source of uncleanness. Their beauty may seduce me, for which they are responsible, and they themselves can be unclean. Again, that's a, a significant shift which we take for granted in the West uh, for, for our women that they don't have that. Female circumcision is part of the Sharia and uh, is a terrible practice for women. And that is another aspect to the, the Sharia that the West doesn't have. And that it may well have, depending upon which Islamic school it followed. The whole public identity that women can have, how women can be seen in public, 
and to what degree they can have a public identity is completely different under Sharia than it is under Christian civilization. I don't have, I'll try to do these last two points quickly. Point seven, slavery. Muhammad was a slave trader. Muhammad, the prophet of Islam, was a slave trader. He enslaved many people, traded in slaves. And slavery exploded under Islam. It took on new heights under Islam. The Islamic empires are actually the largest slave trading empires in world history. They completely dwarf the North Atlantic slave trade. It's interesting, isn't it? That when we hear about slavery on SBS or the ABC, it's always the North Atlantic slave trade. That's about the third in scale. The first is the Islamic slave trade, the second is into South America, and then the third is the North American. Please have a look at your notes under slavery there. I haven't got these numbered, but we'll just read them together. Slavery in general, and the references I'm giving here are written by an African, an African talking about the influence of, of Islam and slavery. He says, slavery in general and black enslavement in particular thus developed into a deeply entrenched institution accepted by the mainline Muslim heritage, uh, by learned Muslim lawyers and pious believers as a matter of course. Right from the conquest of Egypt by Arab armies between 639 and 642 CE, the land of the blacks, Bilad as-Sudan, became a reservoir of slaves for the Muslim world. The main sources of slavers were war, uh, raiding, tribute, purchase and kidnap. Muslim enslavement of traditional African believers during the wake of jihad movements is one single factor that accounts for the large-scale conversion to Islam in the 18th and 19th century Western and Central Sudan. With regards to most parts of Muslim Africa, however, long before Europeans ever appeared on the scene, slavery was a well-organised and institutionalised system. The holiest city in Mecca, the, the holy city of, uh, of Islam, Mecca, became the centre of slave trade in the world and remained so well into the 20th century. From there, slaves captured and brought from East Africa and Sudan were distributed to other parts of Arabia and the Muslim world. Now, slavery was there in the early parts of history, although Augustine was working against it. And it was not a major part of Christianity. But in the end, it was Wilberforce and evangelical Christians who worked to abolish slavery. If the West had been Islamic, there would be no abolition of slavery. I have no idea where, where it would, the impetus would come from. It certainly never came from Islam. There's been no, across the 1,200 years that Islam ruled the world, there was never a movement for the abolition of slavery. This is a uniquely Christian thing. The other thing, of course, is that we have the civil rights movement in the US. The reason we have the civil rights movement in the US is because there are slaves, there are people who were from slaves there. 
That's why we have it, because there are Africans there. This may seem like a really obvious point, but in the Islamic slave trade, African men were castrated. That was the standard practice. And the result is that there's no civil rights movement in the Muslim world. You should, you should realise that. You, you might think, oh, why isn't... So you, you, you never even ask the question, do you, as to why is there no civil rights movement in Saudi Arabia? Well, because the men were castrated. It was generational genocide. Why is there no civil rights movement in Iraq? Well, because the millions who went in there were castrated. Why is there no civil rights movement in Turkey? Well, because the men were castrated. In the US, uh, and I'm not trying to excuse uh, the European involvement in slavery, but we did not castrate the, the, African, the African men. We allowed them to have families and they are there today. And that's why you have the civil rights movement. The civil rights movement is not from Martin Luther King or anybody else, it's that they're there. <laughs> you, you don't have a civil rights movement if the people aren't there. It's a very basic point. And you, would, you don't have any civil rights movements for African slaves in Islamic countries because they're not there. The last one I want to move on to, to finish up, is art and music. We'll look at our final quote. Narrated Abu Amir, so, so this is a, a, an account from Muhammad's life, that he heard the prophet Muhammad saying, from among my followers there will be some people who will consider illegal sexual intercourse, the wearing of silk, the drinking of alcoholic drinks, and the use of musical instruments as lawful. God will judge them. Now this is a, a very big difference between Islamic civilization and Western civilization, and that is regarding art and music. Islamic, the, the Islamic world does have art. When the Muslims conquered the, the Greco-Roman world, they studied mathematics from the Greeks, and then they started to make their, their famous uh, mathematical artwork from this that they took from the Greeks. But in terms of the great paintings of the Western world, there is nothing equivalent in the Muslim world because Islam was just really against depicting creatures. And when it comes to music, well, when we read about the reformers in Islamic history, one of the reforms they would make would be what we see here, and that is removing musical instruments. And so I've read of reformers in Iraq and part of their reformation was to destroy musical instruments. It's a very different civilization, isn't it? Where music is haram. We see this in Islamic schools in Australia where they don't teach music, by and large. And when you see famous Muslim musicians, like Cat Stevens or somebody like that, whatever his name is now, you need to understand they're not doing it because of Islam, they're doing it in spite of Islam. So that the, the, the Islamic teaching makes a big difference to our whole cultural expression, to our artistic expression, to the classics of music that we just take for granted. If we'd been under Sharia, there would be no Handel's Messiah. There would be none of this classical music. Go and have a look at the Islamic world and you see very basic music 
And a lot of that music that's there is in spite of Islam, not because of it. I'm going to conclude now. How did Islam shape civilization? And what would we look like under Sharia? Well, Islam certainly does generate its own civilization. It's all based around Muhammad. It's a solar Muhammad, however you want to put that. And it would make a massive difference for us in the West. We would have a different history of the world. We would have a different calendar. We'd have a different understanding of how God's worked in the world. We would have a different way of engaging with the nations around us through our, our engagement in jihad. We'd have a different understanding of humanity, a, different, a religious class structure. Our women would have a completely different way of thinking about themselves. We would have a different attitude towards slavery. And we would have a different attitude towards art and music. I thank God that the West didn't fall to Islam. I thank God that it was Christ alone that shaped us and that the gospel gave us a much better civilization that we can enjoy and that we can be thankful to God for and that we shouldn't take for granted. Thank you.